I'll call myself a Bible teacher at LifePoint Church. Pastor Corey's getting a break today, and I'm sure that he's going to update you later about that. I want to take a second and say seriously how proud I am of the parents who came forward making the public commitment to raise their children in a Christian home and to see that the kids are involved in a Christian community like here at Life Point Church. So let's do our best as a, as a church family to encourage them, like Kristen said, and, and make them feel supported. I want to thank uh, Chad for leading worship. Uh, hopefully we'll have a time to get him back on stage near the end of the service. This happens to be week three of our series entitled Ordinary People, and it happens to be the study of Old Testament characters that when you're reading through your Bible that you might just glaze over their names. They may seem obscure, but yet their stories prove that they're extraordinary regarding the unique service that they've offered to God. And if it hadn't landed uh, yet for you, the big idea of this series, or if you happen to be visiting for the first time, one of LifePoint's core values is personal ministry, serving others in some capacity. We call them life teams here, and we're asking for folks to volunteer to be, serve on a life team. And an example of some of our life teams, we've got next steps teams, we've got a security team, a parking team, kids ministry team. We've got music, we've got junior high, high school, we, the list goes on and on. But here's the rub for me, is, is, is think about this, if, why if you're a Christian, would you have to be prodded or guilted into doing personal ministry or serving others? I mean, for me, I mean logically, personal ministry for a Christian it should come natural. It should be an outflow of understanding who we are and how we fit into the story of the Bible and not from what we do or how often we do it. Because today's story, if you were to lift it out of context, it could all become about what the characters in this story do. But if it's read within its larger narrative, it becomes clearer. It's not about what they do, but it's about who they are. And for those of you that are already involved in personal ministry, hey, I want to say thank you for serving. We certainly need you. Maybe, or for some of you that are in part-time ministry, maybe some of you are in full-time, heck, maybe even some of you work on church staff I think today's teaching addresses how can we keep that from becoming a grind or how can we keep that from becoming routine or even causing us resentment. I mean, for instance, if you got too close to the edge of a cliff and you slipped and you fell off and you saw a branch on the way down, your first thought on the way down probably won't be, I wish I wouldn't have passed on that piece of cake after dinner. Or, why didn't I finance that BMW after all? No. The only question that matters as you're falling down to your demise is, will the branch hold me? And looking at personal ministry through the lens of what we Christians do, friends, that's not going to be a branch that will hold you. 
trust me, I have been there. Heck, maybe you're even there too. So how can serving feel less like work? It doesn't matter if you're volunteering, if you're in part-time, full-time ministry, whatever. How can it feel less like work and more like ministry? And how can the story of these two obscure characters in Exodus 35 answer that question? Well, let's dive in and see. If you've got your Bibles, open them to Exodus 35. If you're using your phone Bible app, Exodus 35. And I'm going to tell you, this teaching today is a page turner. Not because it's that good, but because we're going to be covering a lot of material, okay? Exodus 35, we're starting at verse 30. It reads like this. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship, to make designs for working in gold, and in silver, and in bronze, and the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He has also put in his heart to teach, both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer, of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver and of performers of every work and makers of designs. So we read this story about these two specific humans, it's Betzalel, even though it's spelled B-E-Z, it's pronounced Bets, like all bets are off. We got Betzalel and Aholiab, and they're filled with God's spirit, equipped for the task of building the tabernacle, which most of you know, that's the tent where gods and humans, God and humans come together in the Old Testament. And if I came across this passage during my devotional time, I think reading devotionally, it would speak to me sort of like this, that as a Christian, I'm called to represent God and do kingdom work within my workplace or within my classroom, and the ministry should happen wherever I go because like Bezalel and Aholiab, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a few other things that we could unpack in those six verses I don't know about you, but it seemed very task-oriented to me as it relates to personal ministry. Because four times in those verses, the word work or working was in that. But there's way more to this story than meets the eye. And with the help of a great study Bible, and I highly, highly recommend you guys have a great study Bible. Nothing at all against phone apps. But I'm telling you, if you have a great study Bible that is chock full of footnotes and cross-references, cross what I found, much to my surprise and great delight, I might add, was that this story, this same story, appears before the one we just read. Do, do me a favor. Have patience with me, and we'll try to land this plane but turn back four chapters right now to Exodus 31. I told you it's going to be a page turner. Exodus 31, 
Check this out, you guys. It's crazy. Exodus 31, verse 1. Now, Moses, now, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name, who? Bethlehem. And he's the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for working gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of stones for settings, the carvings of wood. Doesn't this sound like Groundhog Day to you all? <laughs> Verse 6. I get to pronounce that Hebrew name again. And behold, I myself have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, and I put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. You guys, this seriously begs the question, why is this story in the book or the scroll of Exodus twice? I mean, certainly it wasn't a copying error by a scribe who was working on this scroll. So why the duplication? Well, obviously, something's going on, so, so what is it? Well, welcome to the wonderful world of biblical literature and how and why this portion of the Exodus scroll happens to be arranged like this. There's a technical term, and gosh, I love technical terms. I love minutia. Um, I, I love details. I love footnotes. And there's this technical term for the placement of identical stories as bookends to hold memorable material together it's called inclusio, inclusio, but the huff term for it is Oreo. I call it Oreo with Betzalel and Aholiab stories. They're the chocolate cookie, and you know all about Oreos, the creamy vanilla center in the middle, that's where the money is. <laughs> Y'all know how to eat Oreos. Remember the jingle in the 70s, a kid will eat the middle of an Oreo first? I told you I would sing. And save the chocolate cookie outside. Y'all remember? Some of you remember that. Well, before we investigate that good stuff in the middle and see all of this in its literary context, we got to begin with the blueprint of the tabernacle because like all good stories, every story's got a beginning. And preparing to eat Oreos, to me the right way, preparing to eat an Oreo, you're beginning, you've got to start with a cold glass of milk, right? You've got to have a cold glass of milk before you have that Oreo experience. And our cold glass of milk in this story, a Betzalel and a Holiab, is going to start Exodus chapter 25 through 30. Now, we're not going to cover it all because I can't get done in the next two hours. Got your attention there, didn't I? We're not going to cover all that material. We don't have time. But just trust me when I say these six chapters is this ice-cold glass of milk. And it's detailing this very orderly construction of what we call the tabernacle. And it's chock full of 
details about the materials and the decor and the sights and the sounds and the smells that that worshipers that got close enough to that tent were to experience as they're in the presence of God. And here's what's so cool in this block of material, you guys, this cold glass of milk is seven times in these chapters, Exodus 25 through 30, you get the phrase, and the Lord spoke. And the Lord spoke. And the Lord spoke. Now just file that in your memory bank just for a second. And immediately following the blueprint of the tabernacle, we've, we've, we have the first mention of Bezalel and Aholiab that we read in Exodus 31. Two humans, the text says, this chocolate cookie text that are filled with the Spirit of God. And when you look at that in the original Hebrew, that term spirit is ruach. Ruach. And it can be translated spirit, wind, or breath. And so these spirit-filled humans are filled for the purpose to do incredible things, to think, to plan, to use their skills to create and to build and to, to decorate. And then right after that in Exodus 31, if you skip down to verses 12 through 17, I told you all this was a page turner. If you go to Exodus 31, 12 through 17, we don't have time to cover it all, but you have a Sabbath reminder in there to where God is saying to these workers that are doing construction, remember you all, six days is long enough to do work, so I want you to Sabbath, I want you to Shabbat, I want you to come to a complete rest for a 24-hour period. And everybody lives happily ever after that, right? Well, maybe in fairy tales, but not in the history of Israel. Because like a speed bump going down the middle of a highway doing 70 miles an hour, we hit Exodus chapter 32, if you're tracking with me. And Exodus 32, in it, something goes horribly wrong. It's Israel's darkest hour as a liberated people. It's what we call the golden calf story. And those of you that are familiar with your Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament Bible, you know the story of the golden calf. And Moses is away from the camp. He's delaying coming down from the mountain because he's spending time with God. He's living large up there on the mountain with Yahweh. And while this disaster is playing out in the valley, we've got the people breaking. The first of the Ten Commandments that God spoke to him in Exodus chapter 20 when he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And what do they do? They grow impatient because Moses is out of sight, out of mind. They make an idol out of their gold. They fashion it into a baby bull, which is a pagan Egyptian god. And they behave like the very people that God recently liberated them from. So you guys with me? So what we've got so far is we've got the space or place where God and humans are going to cohabitate together. 
in that blueprint of the temple. That's our milk. And then we got the first chocolate cookie. We've got two humans, Bezalel and Aholiab, who God breathes a spirit into to enable them to do incredible work. And then they're reminded of a Shabbat, a Sabbath, to cease doing work for a 24-hour period. And then something goes horribly wrong and the, the liberated people choose to shun God and create their own God. Spoil alert. You guys ever heard of a story in the Bible like this before? All right, undo that spoil alert. The last parts of Exodus 32, the last half of the 32 of Exodus, all of Exodus chapter 33 and 34, more of this creamy vanilla center thing. Five times we've got Moses interceding on behalf of these sinful people. And in these two and a half chapters, we've got words like Moses saying to Yahweh, forgive them of their sins. If not, take my life for theirs. Boy, do the gospel authors pick up on that story. Jesus is saying on the cross, what was it? Father. Abba, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Gosh, it's like Jesus is the new Moses when he says that. And in in these two and a half chapters back in Exodus again, Moses says, they're your people, God. And Yahweh goes, no, 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 they're your people. And then God says to Moses, I'm not going to with you guys in the promised land. And Moses says to God, yes, you will. Yes, you will go with us into the promised land because you're not going to let your name be shunned among these heathen nations. So we have that bantering back and forth. And then in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, we've got this incredible verse that says, 40 days on Mount Sinai and 40 nights Moses is with the Lord and he didn't eat bread or drink water and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant of the Ten Commandments. And then we dovetail right back into another Sabbath reminder that we find in Exodus chapter 35, verse 2. We've got this inclusio or what I call again the second chocolate cookie. We've got the Sabbath reminder and finally we return right back to where we started. We've got the story of B&O, Bezalel and Aholiab 2.0 which is kind of like a reboot story if you will. So you get it? If you read Exodus 35, where we started, Exodus 35, verse 30 through 35, if you were to read that out of its literary context, again, you could apply it to personal ministry like, as a Christian, I'm called to represent God and do kingdom work within my workplace or within my classroom, and the ministry should happen wherever I go because like B&O, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that interpretation is wrong, but I'm saying if you lift it out of its story context, that interpretation may like a branch hold you for a while, but after so long, 
If personal ministry seems like it's task-driven to you, seems like it's work, fix, do, work, fix, do, then like a branch, it's going to break. But for those of you who love connecting dots, have you seen how brilliantly these biblical authors particularly the ones that worked on the Exodus scroll and have edited it, have drawn their audience into a story. They're trying to draw their hearers into, this is your story. And that's what we're trying to do this morning is to draw you as Christians, as hearers, this is your story. We are Israel 2.0. Look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He comes down, and he's teaching the law. He's teaching the new law. He's reconstituting a new Israel 2.0. That's us. As we do personal ministry as spirit-filled Christians, But let me ask you this. Can you think of another story in your Bible similar to the one we just read that talks about a place being constructed from then God said, repeated over and over and over again. And God said. I don't know about you, but it sounds like the orderly creation of the cosmos to me. Genesis chapter 1. And the Garden of Eden. And that's because Exodus 25 through 30, that tabernacle blueprint, is mapped right on to the creation story. You see it? Can you think about another story in your Bible similar to the one we read about two humans being filled with God's ruach and put into the garden? To do what? To work. To cultivate, to keep it. You can just see how that in Exodus 31, Bezalel and Aholiab's first mention, how it's mapped on to the, how God created humans and breathed into them the ruach or the breath of life in Genesis chapter 2. Now I'm going to stop asking, can you think about another story in your Bible? Because you guys are starting to get it, I'm sure. In Exodus 31, after the Bezalel and Aholiab's first appearance in the story, we've got, remember, we've got a Sabbath reminder. God says Shabbat. God says to cease. And it's mapped right on to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to where it tells us that on day 7, God Shabbats. God settles in the garden with the two humans. And everyone lives happily ever after, right? No sooner than Bezalel gets spirit-filled and the workers are reminded about Sabbath rest. Remember Exodus 32? Hit us like a thunderbolt. We read about Israel's darkest hour, the liberated people who were married to God at Sinai in a covenant ceremony. These people that were entrusted with the antidote for sin and idolatry, called to be salt and light to the nations, they become infected with the same disease, sin and idolatry. And Exodus 32 
Israel's darkest hour as a nation is perfectly mapped onto Genesis chapter 3 to where the two humans in the garden, the tester comes, and they quit on God so that they can become their own gods, and they commit the original sin, and they suffer the consequences. And dang it, we've been suffering the consequences ever since. But it's interesting in the story that in Genesis chapter 3, God shows mercy along with his judgment because he covers her nakedness with the sacrifice of an animal. And you see how that maps all on to the sacrifice of Jesus and John saying um, in his gospel, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. We go back to Exodus 34. We've got Moses on the mountain 40 days. That maps perfectly on to Genesis chapter 8 to where the ark of Noah came to rest on the mountains of Ararat after 40 days of constant rain. We got Moses coming down the mountain with the new tablets, the second edition, the word of the covenant, and that hyperlinks perfectly with Genesis chapter 9. God makes a covenant with Noah that never again water is going to become a flood to destroy all flesh with the sign of the covenant being a rainbow. And then we come full circle to where we started this morning. Exodus 35, Bezalel and Aholiab all over again. And how does this map? What does it map to? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, one of the most fundamental chapters in the history of the Israelites in your Hebrew Old Testament Bible Genesis chapter 12, God calls this homeless nomad out of Babylon who's well past child-producing age and promises him he's going to be the father of many nations and through his descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You guys, then and there, God's call to Abraham is for the whole purpose of undoing the sin of Adam. Abraham is God's way of rebooting the plan, the plan that's always been to co-rule and reign with human imagers in his good, in his good, and in his very good creation. And so the text we started out with in its literary context, it's mapped onto the story of God calling Abraham to undo Adam's sin. And the gospel authors pick up perfectly on that story because you look at the first verse of the first chapter of the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christu, the Son of God, of Jesus Messiah, 
the son of Abraham. And so let's land the plane. Personal ministry. To me, it's a redemptive story. Once you see it in its literary context of the 11 chapters that we looked at, and if you take the Exodus 35 account of Bezalel and Aholiab, pull it out of its literary context, I think what you're left with is a soundbite and not a story. And sound bites serve a purpose, but they're not going to be branches that will hold you. It's like eating one half of the chocolate cookie and calling that eating an Oreo. What I think we need to start doing is I think we need to start reading the Bible in chunks, whole epistles at a time, a gospel per week, maybe taking the Pentateuch, the first five chapters, the f- or first five books of the Old Testament, and taking a month to go through them. Why? Because the biblical authors, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have written and edited and strategically placed material in these stories to assimilate us, the audience, into a mega story. And what I'm saying to you this morning is reading the Bible a story and not as a moral handbook is going to remind us, it's going to recast our thinking that personal ministry is not what we do. It's not about showing up and just checking boxes. Personal ministry, it's a natural outflow resulting from knowing who we are and how we see ourselves fitting into this story. See, I think it's an Oreo story. I think it's a reboot story, and I think that it's a branch that will hold you story. And first and foremost, it's his story. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, it is clearer, and it is easy to see you in this story. In the Gospels, it is so easy to see how that you are presented and offered up as the new Adam. How that you are presented and offered up as the new Noah. The new Abraham. And yes, Lord, the new Moses. And I ask you today that your spirit that convicts us of our sins, that helps us, that teaches us, and that is in us will lead us to a better understanding that this book, this book is not a moral handbook It's not a systematic theology uh, textbook, but it is a mega story 
the unified story that leads readers to who you are, Jesus. May we know you better. Draw us into story. Draw us into personal ministry. Draw us into serving others, Lord. Draw us into God being less selfish, Lord, and more giving. But God, may it be done out of gratitude and not out of begrudgment. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done for us. In your name, Lord, we pray and amen.